Welcome to Can I Speak to Your Product Manager, the nitty-gritty with your favorite PMs. I'm Kyle Kolich, Vice President of Product at Zora. And I'm Lucas Weber, Director of Product Management at Zora. On today's episode, we have Krishan Gupta, Senior Product Manager at Google. So getting into the kind of that, that mindset of innovation, what are some of the things at top of mind for you as a, as a PM? What, what, what do you think is your next you know, kind of big thing? With any new technology, there's people that just want to be in it for the buzzwords. But I am really a believer, and I do think a lot of product managers are going to need to figure out how to work with AI in the future because it's going to become table stakes pretty soon. You can specify what all the screens are supposed to be. The engineers can build it, you test it, and you ship it. And so you have to make it so that your AI is using the right models for explainability and also that you've got the user experience built in so that when somebody w does want to launch an investigation, for example, they've got all the artifacts that they're going to need for the entire end-to-end -end process to carry that from end-to-end. -end. PM work is all about prioritization, and we know that you know, we want to be doing all the cool stuff with innovation like AI, right? Is there any sort of insights maybe that where you were able to bring to bear some some serious PM wisdom to to figure out how to best prioritize that and, and find some balance there? Yeah, as somebody that's been doing product management for a long time, I'm very familiar with this problem. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are too, which is, you know, you've always got that backlog of hundreds of bugs, right, that you could go chase after. One thing that we also have is usually a lot of engineering folks are screaming about te technical debt, right? Mm -hmm. And they want to re-architect things or just go back and refactor some of the stuff that they had to ship in a rush. I think when you get to the root of those problems, you have to look at where they come from. I think one of the roots is misaligned incentives, right? So PMs and some folks want to work on the big feature stuff, right? Some of the engineers might be graded on their quality of their code, right? Or, you know, they want to put something on their resume about how they use a large language model or whatever the cool thing is at the time, right? So there's misaligned incentives. There's also asymmetric information. So if you're working in B2B, for example, your customer success team has a much better sense of what's happening at all your customers than the product or engineering teams do. There's recency bias. Typically, if you're in a triage meeting, the bug that you're looking at seems really bad. But the one you know, that's sitting in a backlog in a database somewhere doesn't seem that bad, right? And there's also this idea of kind of a queuing problem, right? Where, okay, maybe you've got three front-end engineers available right now, but no back-end engineers. So, you know, your your whole sprint is, is stalled. So we've got all these systemic problems going on within a lot of different product organizations. And one of the things that I found that really was able to address a lot of those things at the same time was a system we implemented at a two, 300-person SaaS company a few years ago. And this was a particular version of Kanban that I found worked really well. And the way it would work is we had epics, Right, collections of user stories. And we would categorize them into one of three things. They were either about features, technical debt, or quality. And the ones that were about technical debt were actually created and managed by the engineering team. We tried to keep them all about the same size so that they were comparable, but a collection of technical debt user stories would get put together, typically around this you know, database optimization. Here's five things that we could do to make it better. The customer success team was actually responsible for the quality one. So if they knew that customer X had a huge deployment coming up next week and this bug was like a pet peeve of theirs, they actually were empowered to put that into an, an epic and 
actually prioritize it towards the top of the quality backlog, let's say. And so we had these three backlogs. Engineering created the tech debt backlog. Customer success created the quality backlog. And the product management team created the feature backlog. And, you know, us, we kind of got involved in everything a little bit. And what we would do is we would actually say, okay, we have capacity across the team for, let's say, 10 teams. And each of those teams should have front-end, back-end, testing, UX, so that a team can ship an epic. And so that really helped with some of those queuing problems where the front-end people are available, but the back-end people aren't, right? Because each team had a little bit of everyone. We helped with the asymmetric information problem because engineering and CS were prioritizing their own backlogs. And the way we would align incentives was we would agree as a company in the executive meeting that right now we really needed to be focused, let's say, on innovation. So we were going to take six feature epics, two about quality and two about technical debt. And that was right for the company at that time, let's say. You know, we, we had to like make a big push to hit our numbers for the end of the year. And a lot of deals were dependent on these new features, right? At other times, you know, if, if we felt like quality or technical debt was getting out of hand, we could totally flip it, right? So we had alignment at a high level about the percentage of our company that we wanted to dedicate to each of those three areas at a given time. And so at any given time, we would have, let's say, 10 epics that were in flight across 10 teams. And the mix was controlled by the executive team so that we had everybody knew the priority of the organization and the incentives were basically forced to be aligned because of this structure. So I found that worked really well. I think it was a, a power move that I was able to kind of stumble into because we had a really good engineering VP at the time that came up with this whole system. But whenever I meet people that are struggling with these problems, I try to share that organization structure because it's just the best that I've ever seen. Awesome. Well, why don't we switch to our last segment, which I think is kind of super fun. Uh, that's our ship it or skip it. What do you want to do? Let's do it. No. No, maybe. Yes. So I'm going to start off with, with the first one. And this one's going to be near and dear to your heart. AI. Ship it or skip it? AI, you got to ship. Gets misused. I think we've been shipping AI for quite some time. The definitions of it tend to change. Often, whatever you can't do yet is considered AI. Right. And then as soon as you're able yeah. to do it, oh, you know, Facebook can recognize faces like that's not AI anymore, right? It, it used to. Yeah. That's an algorithm, right? Yeah. So yeah, I think we're going to be shipping yeah. AI for a long time, but every time it works, we're going to say it's not AI. And what about the boring company's tunnel, the LVCC loop? Will you ship it or skip it? Anything Elon Musk is doing, I'm shipping. <laughs> I don't, don't want to bet against that guy. Uh, I go. see an Elon fan. All right. All right. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. And as, as somebody who's working on hardware now, I, I've gained a new appreciation for the real world, I think. Well, speaking of, what about hardware? Would you do that again? Hardware is, is amazing. I'm hooked on hardware. The amount of things that we can do behind a screen, I think, is, is, does have a limit, right? And mm. at some point, people want things in the real world. Or even just to access the virtual world, right? Apple shipping. The Vision Apple's Pro. A $3,000 some dollars. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Apple Vision that's Pro. the latest greatest. And, yeah. It's hardware that's supposed to get you connected to this virtual world. And I imagine that hardware is only going to get better over time. At the risk of failing to prioritize, I'm going to ship it. <laughs> nice. Very good. I, I got one. Maybe, maybe, this will, maybe this will get the cut. But discovered a new recipe for Coca-Cola. Will you, will you put out a new Coke? New Coke. I don't, yeah, I don't think the track record is there. So might have found one that I'll, I'll, I'll skip. Throw that nice. one out. Like, give me a hard kombucha. Something like that. Anything else top of mind for you, Christian, that, that 
you're thinking of shipping or, or skipping? <laughs> Let's skip everything else and just skip everything else. Get to it. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep our, our hardware AI and hard kombucha. And a tunnel. That is pretty, pretty good. And a tunnel. Oh, and, and a trip to Vegas. Yes. On today's episode, we have Eugene Song, VP of Product Management at BrainPop. So you're working for BrainPop right now. We'd love to hear a little bit more about maybe how you're applying just what you just said there. And, and maybe before we even go there, you could maybe tell us a little bit about what BrainPop is and what do you guys do as a company? Sure. BrainPop is a digital learning resource and platform. We have been around for almost 25 years, I think, at this point. We like to say that we were EdTech before EdTech was a thing. We were streaming video before streaming video was a thing. You know, like we, we've been around for, for a while. And we were most well known, I would say, for, for these, the content that we've been producing for all this time, which are these sort of short, sort of five to seven minute long explainer videos. And, and that's across a variety of time. I think we cover a thousand different topics at this point or probably more. And so that's kind of how we came up and, and got to everybody kind of got to know our product through these, through these amazing videos that, that help explain concepts to kids. Over the years, we've evolved into more of a, a learning platform, right? So it's really not just about content consumption at this point. Now it's really more including things like different types of assessments, formative assessments, and otherwise. And then ultimately, you know, the shift that we've been making, pushing towards a lot harder over the past couple of years is how do we take the, the output of those assessments and actually show learning outcomes across a spectrum of different metrics, and then ultimately help inform the sort of next steps of, of, of learning for, for students and to help teachers that way. So that's like a super, super high level about what it is that we do. Yeah, this is awesome. So, so it's ed tech and it's specifically for students, right? So particular ages, grades? Is yeah, it so we, we service K through eighth grade. So this must be a, quite a challenging thing, both in terms of the growth, right, and, and adoption of your products. But I think the, the bigger challenge is you you particularly mentioned that districts are looking for outcomes to prove this stuff. So this this has got to just be something very challenging and, and, and really a great opportunity for you guys. Any any recommendations that, you know, given the, the great upswing and now kind of the grand rationalization, right, of these services, yeah. are you, you know, what's changed? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely something we've been focusing real hard on and, and pushing more towards as a, as a company. Certainly, it's reflected in our product as well. We've been rolling out, you know, brand new reports and insights that are so much more granular and specific about about exactly these types of learning outcomes and have gotten incredibly great, feed, you know, positive feedback from from everybody that we've shown them to. I think as a, as a product leader, as a VP of product, like the the types of questions that that I asked myself and, and my colleagues, you know, head of design, head of user research, you know, head of learning design sort of all asked ourselves during this process was, we know kind of tactically how to solve some of these problems. And yeah, there's like a new report over here that we need to build or a different type of assessment or like whatever. But we also have a portfolio of products that have built up over the past 25 years or so. And so, you know, you have this this sort of like portfolio of products. How does it all fit together? Right? You know, because you spend like a lot of SaaS companies, you spend a lot of time like solving this problem over here. Then you go solve that problem over there. And then there's another problem over there that you solve, right? And, you, and it's great. You've got this basket of SKUs that your sales team can go and sell. But when you're trying to sort of fundamentally shift the direction of the company and the perception of your company and the, the, the things that you're trying to do for your customers who now their needs have changed quite drastically, you know, in a relatively short period of time, especially when you're talking about education, which, you know, the cycles are years long. 
the challenge for us, I think, was to think a lot more holistically about the entire portfolio. How does this all fit together? And how do you steer that ship to the point where you're able to deliver these, you know, as we talked about these learning outcomes or whatever, there are different ways to do this, right? Like there are these like super dry, like test preppy kind of products out there that, that do that really well, you know, and that's fine, but that's not us, right? So the additional challenge then that you have to concern yourself with the product is what is the heart and soul of the product? Like, why do people even like this thing in the first place? Well, it's because of who we are. I would argue that the one thing that we do better than anyone else in the entire world is the way that we talk to kids. The way that we communicate the information to children is our special sauce. Like, it's just, it's, it's amazing to like see our editorial and our video production team, like in our script writer and all the people that, and learning designers and all the people that go into making this content, the way that they're able to frame these things and explain things, is, it's great, you know, and it's always been our strength. And, and it sort of has infused itself through the DNA of the product in, in different ways, how do you make sure that you can take something that has been so, so amazing for, for so many people and so many kids and, and the way that it talks in this sort of, and that it's a very sort of, it's almost hard to nail down like what's so great about it. How do you take that and then also make this product that's like super rigorous, more linear, you know, like <laughs> is like infused with like recommendations and so that sort of thing, like you're all of a sudden like formalizing a lot of this product in a way that's never been done before. How do we make sure that we address our customers' needs and change the the shape of the products in the company without losing the heart and soul of what made us great in the first place, you know? How to measure the magic. I wanted now to just narrow it down to, you know, the a moment or, or a situation where you need to really wrestle something down. Yeah. And and bring out the the PM toolkits and power tools and whatever else necessary to get things done. Is, is there a particular story maybe that stands out in your mind that that that's worth talking through? Yeah, there was a moment a few years ago where we were as I mentioned earlier, we have this brand new product called Brain Pop Science that's specifically aimed at middle school students grades around 6 to 8. And a couple of years ago, we were in the early phases of building what was essentially going to be a beta for this product. And we found ourselves in the position without without a product lead on this on this this initiative. I kind of looked around the room and I was like, "Well, I guess it's me that if if nobody's raising their hand, it's probably you." So I had to kind of roll up my sleeves and remember what it was like to be a PM again, and got back in there writing tickets and doing grooming sessions and you know sprint playing all this other stuff. And I think the the interesting thing for me was, again, this sort of context shift. And it's, I guess, the reverse of what we were talking about before, right? Like all of a sudden finding yourself as a manager of managers and then flipping the switch and dropping back, you know? And so I think, I think as a PM, like that's a, that's a common sort of pattern, I guess, that you see with PMs is that you're often the gap filler in a lot of ways, right? Like if it's just not happening or something's, you just got to do it. You gotta, you're responsible for getting your, the, the outcome and the output. So get in there and get it done, right? This is one of those instances where I found myself and and I just had to go in there and figure this out. And in this particular case, I think the team was was sort of stuck. There was, again, like a lot of they were swimming in ambiguity. It was, you know, brand new product, you know, like something very, very new. The way that we were approaching building this product was something very new for the company at the time. And we had a hard time nailing down the value proposition. And so I felt like my chief role there and, and something, again, that I feel like a lot of PMs understand is like, how do you just get your team unstuck, right? Because you can swirl forever in this sort of analysis paralysis phase. And so, you know, get, like for me, like it was, it was making like the deep partnerships that I had with people, you know, like my, again, my colleagues in design and so on and so forth, you know, 
just getting together, jamming on stuff and trying to trying to really break it down to the simplest thing possible, right? Like at some point, I think my my colleague just went to her designer was like, draw something, just draw, like, like stop sitting around talking about it. Just draw something, start, just start, you know? It's not going to be perfect. We're going to throw away. It's fine, but just start with something, right? And ultimately what we got to was we had to define what was the min, I know we talk about minimum viable product, minimum level level product. It was, and, and that process for us was identifying a journey that we that was contained enough that we could build for beta in the amount of time that we had that would showcase that this was different than our original product, right? Because again, like because we had the luxury of of building this product a few years ago, we had all of this already in our heads about okay, we have to this has to, this is going to have to be much more rigorous, has to be more standalone. We have to build from the ground up to do these things that the other product was not built from the ground up to do. So we had the luxury of all of that. What is the cleanest, simplest way to demonstrate that to anybody who who happens upon this upon this sort of early access uh, version of the product? And so that was ultimately what you know what we had to define, and and I had to just sort of get in there and do it myself, I guess. And it was great, and it was it was certainly a learning process. And thank God I was able to hire somebody who was much better at me than doing all that. And so I just kind of handed her. I was like, here it is, you know, yeah, this is what you're getting. Just so you know, like we got to get this thing out the door, and then you can go on and do your own thing. And we did, and it was great. The product is doing really, really well right now. Um, it's a, the the product itself is amazing. I think it's it's one of the coolest things I've had the pleasure of working on in a long time. I think this also goes into another role of product managers to to, to know to, to to ship it or to skip it. What do you want to do? Let's do it. No. No. Maybe. Yes. First one, right. because you're a drummer, and I know there's a controversy about drumming on the pla- <laughs> plastic tip drumsticks. Over the oh, wooden man. ones. Which one? I'd skip the plastic tips, man. I skip, skip it. it. Skip it. Yeah, I'm a I'm a purist, man. Go go. It's got to be wooden. I can't. All right. I can't do the All plastic right. tips. There's yeah. a whole a whole board about that. <laughs> oh, I'm. Uh, yep. Yeah. I wanted to get your opinion on it. I'm like, oh wow, there's a lot of debate on that one. Yeah, I'm sure I pissed somebody off by saying that, but yeah, that's it's got to be. Forget the plastic tips. Okay. All right. We'll we'll, we'll definitely hide the, the 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 trolls and comments off of that one. Um, <laughs> What about Google Glass? Oh man, I, I'm gonna say ship it. I, I think I think that it had an unfortunate reception. I think when it first came out, I have a picture of myself trying on a pair when I worked at the New York Times. We got an an advanced set of these, and I did look ridiculous with these on. I I think that there's such a cool use case for these things, though, if you get it right. And I don't think that it's like the everyday, like day to day thing that you know people just walk around with this thing. I think like. And I actually think the glass team went and did this. Like, I think they went and looked at industry and figured out, are there ways that we can actually help people, you know, in like on like factory lines, as an example. I think this is the experiment they ran. Right. And like, oh, God, I think that that stuff, I think, is amazing. It would be an amazing and not so ridiculous looking application of something like this. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully we can get there. It also could fold into some of the learning, too. I mean, there there has to be some way of maybe folding to help kids learn better and you know, tie the dots, but there may be something there. Absolutely. Flying cars. I'd skip it for now. I'd skip it. I'd skip it. Okay. I I feel like we got it. We got to get the regular cars. Like there's a lot that we need to do with some regular. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I, 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 flying cars, I would be nervous again. I'm going to, I'm going to skip it. Skip it. I mean, maybe with Lucas, because he is a pilot. So I I feel better if he was using it, but maybe just absolutely lives in New York who drives maybe once, once, once every uh, six months, I probably shouldn't be in front of a car that flies. 
Yeah, definitely not in front of the car, Kyle. Be inside the car. Just pro <laughs> that's tip. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Smoking like a true New Yorker. I love it. Studying abroad. I would, I, I'd certainly ship that. I think, yes. Yeah, I'd ship that. We spend so much time in our own bubbles, right? It's always is a, just a great way to take yourself outside of your context, learn something new about the way that other people live and how they think. My theory is that everybody's more or less the same, mm-hmm. right? But I think at their core, everybody kind of wants the same thing. And I think one of the great things about about going abroad is learning the different ways that people sort of approach that particular problem for themselves. So I would say, yeah, I'd ship it. Always, always up for getting a new perspective on things, right? Around the things that, that everybody cares about and, and what's valuable. All focusing on outcomes. On today's episode, we have Bjorn Morton, Senior Director of Product Development at Gannett. So we're going to get into kind of the innovation agility, the nitty gritty of the daily work of a PM. So just what, what are some of the top of mind for you as a PM? Well, so I, I think I gave you my official HR title, but, you know, what I really do on a, on a daily basis is, is lead what we call our subscription engineering group, which we do, we do a lot. We've got audience platform, we've got backend billing, but, but really at the core of that is figuring out how we deliver that digital subscriptions experience. We've got a a little over 200 newspapers that, that of course, have the associated websites that, that offer a subscription product. Those are, are, you know, mostly cities like Indianapolis, down to smaller cities. And, of course, USA Today is, is our flagship. But what we do is, is work on the technology, whether it's, you know, figuring out how to support an emerging paywall model. So... I think we're all accustomed to what you would call like a basic metered consumption model that that most newspapers have been doing for, I think, at least a decade now. So read a certain number of articles, and after you've read those articles, we're going to ask you to pay up. Or maybe some people have a, a hybrid model where some of those articles are tagged as subscriber only, so more of a, a, a freemium model. I think what, what we're seeing is that, that, that does work up to a point. So absolutely allows people to engage with your content and get them to a situation where they, they could choose to become a subscriber. But I, I think what we're seeing at Gannett and, and in the industry in general is that probably those sort of basic models are going to have to get if not replaced, at least supplanted by, by smarter models. And that's where we're spending a lot of time right now. I, I don't have, don't have answers yet as far as how we solve those problems. I think we're, we're frankly a ways out from there, but I think we have to start thinking more about creative solutions in that space so that we're asking people to pay at the right time. And yeah, that, that's probably the most pressing one right now. Yeah, so, so paying at the, the right time. What, I also saw something a little bit in some of your research about having a subscriber having its own price too, like getting down to the, not only when, when to pop the, the paywall, yeah. do that, but actually get to that unique price to per user to that level. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So maybe more dynamic pricing. We've been 
looking at various models for a while, as, as most have in terms of, of how are you deciding whether a, the, the propensity of a subscriber. And, and I think we're at a state where there's actually pretty good modeling around saying that there's some basic propensity here. Generally, I, I don't know that it's that difficult if, you know, when, when we're talking about the, the, the TAM of an Indianapolis star, it's, it's, you know, generally people in that, that market area, but obviously there are, are consumers that, that are going to be better prospects and those that we probably shouldn't be at least spending money trying to reach and, and yeah, we been fairly successful at, at that for a while now. But again, I, I think if you're reliant on a single sort of ubiquitous meter model that just says, even if Bjorn is a very high propensity subscriber, and maybe we think his ARPU is, is also going to be pretty good. Does that mean that I should get the same meter model? So I should be allowed to view a certain amount of content for free before seeing a modal or, or paywall that says you really should become a subscriber. Maybe that rule set is, is different depending on how that subscriber looks, but agree. It may also be that, that at the end of the day, the, the rate plan or, or product mix looks different. You know, one thing that, that we're also working hard on is, is figuring out what bundles and, and packages might look interesting to consumers. So I told you we've got 200 plus websites with subscription models. Those all operate really quite independently right now. So if, if I'm a subscriber to the Indianapolis Star, I'm not a subscriber to the Cincinnati Inquirer. I'm not a subscriber to the Columbus Dispatch. Well, those are all our properties. Those are all within a relatively small geographic area. Is there, in fact, crossover in, in those products that would actually lead to a, a new product with, with higher ARPU? I think the short answer is we don't know yet, but those are the sorts of questions where we're attempting to answer and test around. Is print still part of the mix? Absolutely. Print is a huge part of the mix. Print is still the, the, the primary revenue driver of, of our business. Although, you know, digital's getting there. In terms of the actual subscriber volume, I think it's about neck and neck right now. So uh, more or less an, an equal number of, of print subscribers to digital subscribers, which is great. I don't think that the assumption that moving subscribers from print to digital is, you know, we might have looked at years ago is is the right approach really as an industry as a whole. I think mm -hmm. where we have to evolve is, is, is selling a digital product. From our perspective, do you look at the print newspaper as a, a product that's really distinct unto itself? Something tangible that shows up in my driveway, I can lean back with my cup of coffee and consume that. That content in a digital form on a website, is it often the same or, or similar content? It absolutely is. But I would argue that from a product perspective, the, the packaging, if that's the right word for it or the best word for it, it very much does matter. So the assumption that, that we're just changing the medium, 
and it's it's the same content and and selling it a little bit differently is is the one I try really hard to challenge. So I think that that print very much has a life. It will continue to have a life. I, I, I think everyone in our industry will admit that the economics of of print will continue to be challenging. Just having something that's a pound of, of newsprint show up on your your driveway every day or or most days for 40 50 bucks a month is, is an incredibly strong value when you think about it but just in terms of, of resources to to print that deliver it the economics of that are are what they are does that again mean that that product is simply shifting from a printed product to a digital product i think the answer is is absolutely not i think that that it's an interesting one for us to sort through, especially when you talk about how do you create more of a leisure or lean back experience with a digital product. It's amazing that you guys are continuing to to look at different products and and innovating. I mean, the the whole concept of having a PDF, right? That that kind of simulates the the actual print and having folks consume it in different ways is a is an amazing way to. To kind of explore your subscribers' way of of consuming this this information and, and exploring new things as that digital product evolves and the digital consumer evolves, they've got very different expectations. So I think on the digital side, we start focusing a lot more on how do we get the consumer through this funnel with as little friction as possible. From our perspective, I need to be able to, to handle that transaction really quickly and really gracefully and get you on your way to your story where with selling print, you know, I think we can afford to, to lose a few cycles there while we figure out if, if your address is deliverable. So that's, that's one that we've been, been working closely with, with Zora on to, to optimize. Is there any particular thing in your mind where you had to really wrestle with something down and maybe you can tell us a little bit about it and how that resolved itself. Yeah, yeah. So I'll I'll actually jump back to what we were talking about in, in terms of that overall sort of checkout experience modernization. And as I said, that's that's something that we've been doing for a long time. But again, we've been doing it through the lens of of a print product. And so as a product manager or product slash engineering manager sort of tasked with how do we, how do we elevate that experience and how do we make that experience right for a digital consumer as opposed to just any news consumer that was identified by Gannett as, as sort of a core challenge late last year. And then that's... A, really that will the big thing I've been working on. So it's difficult. I sit within our product engineering group at Gannett. I have to say, you know, was a subscription led company long before subscription led companies were cool. Right. I think we go back to 1904. We've been doing it for a long time. So we, we have some really incredible practices built up around that. They're not always as applicable to some of the digital specific use cases as, as you might think. So I think as a, as a product manager where, where I've flexed over the last year or so 
is in that space where the decisions that we're making from sort of a digital consumer perspective in order to evolve that overall CX have a lot more business crossover than, than you might think it is. So it's, it's been interesting to get involved with uh, tax engines and, and compliance and, and all that, that fun stuff that really goes along with, with getting under the hood of, of optimizing a billing system. It's tempting to say that, well, from a product perspective, do I need to know about a tax engine? You know, maybe not. But at the end of the day, that tax engine, I don't know if it costs me 500 milliseconds to get that tax return, it has a very real impact on, on consumer experience. So yeah, it's been interesting to, to get under the hood of, of some of those areas that, that we in product might otherwise sort of abstract out. Any particular instance there where where you found that you had to really dig into the details and mentioned the tax engine, any, any other technology maybe that you found that came into the picture that you you initially thought wouldn't be an issue, but actually caused some level of, of needing to really optimize the, the experience for your customers? Yeah, and so I think we're 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 in the midst of that right now, actually. I, I think it, it's it's the other piece of that 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 maybe usually sort of sits in the background and that is the payment gateway. So we have an interesting model. It's it's generally predicated on introductory offers that are very low price. So, you know, $1 for three months, $1 for six months, et cetera, which is great from a consumer perspective. And, and we see the results of that as we run campaigns. Consumers love being able to sign up for that have months to get used to using the product and, and hopefully become loyal subscribers. But I probably don't have to tell you that, that payment gateways don't love $1 transactions. Potentially bad actors do. So there, there's definitely some weeds that, that we'll have to wander down because I think it is important that, that we maintain the ability to, to take those sort of low value transactions to, to get a customer started, but, but they're very interesting questions, right? I think it's the way they're, they're changing the way payments keeps in, innovating is impressive and probably new things come up, which actually leads us to the next segment, which is called ship it or skip it. What do you want to do? Let's do it. No, no, maybe. Yes. One of them I wanted to do was that I just saw this at my local Whole Foods. Maybe this might apply to that fast funnel sign up, but using your palm of your hand to make a payment. Would you ship it or would you skip it? Oh, I'm going to say skip it. Skip it. Y you know, I, I may be in the minority here, but I, I, I'm not really sure what problem we're solving there. I can, I uh, I, uh, you've got contactless credit cards, you've got the NFC phones. Do I really need to use my phone? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of people were concerned about, you know, taking more data from you. And is it really that much inconvenience to, to do your, you know, your phone or your watch or whatever? But okay, we'll quote you down as skip it for that one. Changing <laughs> gears a little bit. I was watching a little, little, the prep for this, the indoor skydiving videos. And I was also watching an MMA fight. What about combining the sports? Would you watch or buy a ticket to a competition that has indoor skydiving plus MMA, mixed martial arts. 
Okay, so I'm going to say ship it, but but heavily caveated. Okay. I, I, I think that we've got something here and, and need to make Mark Zuckerberg and, and Elon aware of See, this I, idea. I, that's what, that's, that's what, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Step into the octagon at 120 miles an hour. Yes. Something about that seems, seems just right to me, but I, but so I don't know that we want to make that a regular thing. No, I think I think for that fight would make sense. It would, you know, equal the weight problem that they were, that they were debating about. There you go. Now they're weightless. And now they're just, you know, floating in the tube. And, you know, Elon loves tubes. So there you go. Another one I had was I, I saw this online too. It was a gas station with a fully automated gas attendant. So it's a robot, opens up your, 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 your gas tank, fills up your gas, everything. You don't see anybody, you don't touch anything. Everything's automated. Ship it or skip it. So I've been a Tesla driver for five years now. So the number of times I've actually had to pull out that gas is limited. So I may not be the right audience for this product, but I'm going to say skip it. It, To me, it has every hallmark of building something that's very cool, but nobody needs. Right. Hmm. Well, it could be a disaster too. (laughs) It could be a disaster. Nice. Yeah, that's right. Well, so let's let's maybe put it in the context of, of your current capability, right? Obviously, electric cars today still need charging. They still need to be plugged in. Would you ship something where the, the charging is just automatic? You know, you park it and, and you walk away and it charges, right? I mean, we feel like we're close there. It feels like Roomba vacuum cleaners already solved that problem where they found their own charger. It's just we're not yeah. quite there yet on the electric cars. So would you, would you go for that? That's a great question. I will say, now this may be my Roomba. I don't, don't want to talk bad about Roomba, but... And it's probably listening. So, yeah, you know, it only finds its home about 50% of the time. Mm. <laughs> what you case. didn't know. There it is. Very good. And so, you know, do I, do I see a value? Uh, so with electric vehicles in particular, maybe, mm. but because we're talking about what being plugged in for hours at a time versus pumping gas for, for a second. Yeah. Is there potentially a niche value there? Sure. Are you going to see supercharger stations convert to some complex robotic thing? I don't think so. 